just listening to my story or part of it, it sounds like I can't keep a job is what that sounds like. Uh, <laughs> so you can take that however you want. Wow, that's, I, y'all may have to wake me up after this. That's, uh, that's quite something, as long as I don't sink into the floor here. So, hey, it is, it's good to be back with you again, and I brought the whole entourage this morning. So my wife, Amy, is here, and Stephen, who's nine, and Kate, who's seven, and Zachary, who's five, but will be six next month. So Zachary was pretty little. The funny thing is, I was telling the kids last night, they have these two little stuffed kangaroos um, that are like keychains or something like that. That was the prize in the Happy Meal the last time we were here, and we stopped at McDonald's. So we still have those. So like, we remember y'all through a kangaroo, if that makes any sense. So hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we're going to bounce back and forth in that chapter here. Um, I'm so thankful. I actually got to spend some time with, with Stephen a couple of weeks ago, and um, it's interesting because Stephen is now at the age that his dad was when I first heard Wayne Barber preach. I came to Christ under the ministry of Wayne Barber. Um, Wayne uh, was one of my first spiritual heroes um, I found myself even this week quoting him. I think he's woven into the message this morning, as a matter of fact. So just a, a huge impact on me. And when I think about Stephen and his ministry to you guys, and praise the Lord for that, this has been a, it's been a difficult year, hasn't it? Um, it's been a difficult year for pastors. I've spent a lot of time with, with pastors interviewing different pastors in the Chattanooga area as far as what they're doing for discipleship ministry, because I'm the discipleship pastor at Grace. And um, it's, it's been a challenging year, um, and different churches, even within Chattanooga, have faced different challenges in the midst of all of this. And um, as, as I think we all know, challenges can also reveal what's going on inside of us. So we're going to invite the Lord, even this morning, to kind of search us, to, to expose us, but also to draw, him, to draw us to Him, because Jesus is our goal. And as I was recently challenged and and reminded, even the goal of discipleship, I'm supposed to be the discipleship pastor, I should know this, but even the goal of discipleship, the goal of discipleship is not further knowledge. The goal of discipleship is not necessarily that that I'm, I'm trained apologetically and I know how to defend the faith, although those are important things. But the goal of discipleship is Christ and that we look more and more like him, that we love like him, that we serve like him, that we even interact with those that would be opposed to us or would see life differently or would see different things differently, that that while we take our stand on the word and on the truth, that we respond as Christ would respond. Let's pray and let's invite the Lord to meet with us, um, and then let's dive into the word. Father, I thank you for this sweet church And um, Lord, thank you for Stephen and Anne, and we pray for them as they're traveling, that you'll give them a safe travel, that you'll refresh them in yourself, Lord, in their interactions with one another and with family. I just pray for a sweet, sweet time. Thank you for the way that he has shepherded this church well, for Stephen and Mike and the elders here and how they have sought your face and sought to walk with you through these challenging days and for this faithful flock that has 
stood together, has loved one another, has drawn strong together and been strengthened in their bonds as they've had to worship outside at a venue and, and now able to come back together. God, I just thank you for your faithfulness, for your grace to this sweet church. And Lord Jesus, we just pray that you'll speak to us now. I pray that you'll give us a holy anticipation and preparation of heart that you will speak to us, that we will hear from you, that, that those in need of comfort will be comforted, that those in need of challenge or reproof or rebuke would be lovingly done so, that those who need to be built up, that those that have come this morning without anybody else knowing it, but in a significant need of an answer, God, I pray that you would speak because Holy Spirit, you are far bigger than me or any one message. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to move among us, to speak to us, to be everything that's needed in this moment. And would you teach me as I seek to teach? Lord, we, we invite you. We want to meet with you. In fact, Lord, if, if you don't meet with us this morning, we're, we're gonna hear a lecture. We're gonna get some more knowledge, but we won't be changed. So come, Lord, and meet with us as we gather in your name, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> A couple of years ago, I um, started having some unusual pain in my stomach. And um, it came in a significant wave. I've had issues with my stomach for years, but it it came in waves, and then it went away, and then it came back. And so my doctor said, let's, do, let's go ahead and do a CT scan. Let's see what's going on on the inside. And it revealed that I had a, a, a tumor about a little bit bigger than a golf ball that was in my stomach. And um, I've been diagnosed with a rare form of stomach cancer. Well, then it turned out that when they went to remove that tumor, they actually found three, so they closed me back up put me on some medication to shrink those. I, we've learned a lot quickly in the last couple of years. And if any of you know about diagnosis like that, you pick up a lot of vocabulary and you learn a lot of terms quickly in the midst of that. It can be overwhelming. Um, well, a year ago, April, they decided they needed to go in and remove those. And there actually wasn't one, there weren't three. It turned out they removed six very rare cancerous tumors from my stomach. But I still remember early on, and right now, it, I had a scan, and it looks like there's, it seems like there's nothing, nothing there for now. But I remember specifically sitting with Dr. Schlebach. Amy and I were with our oncologist who's a believer, and my word, I remember him walking in the room one time going, you still trusting? That's the guy you want as your oncologist. You still trust in the Lord? Because he's the one, you're in his hands. But I remember him telling us that that pain was a gift now, what's interesting, I had two significant waves of that pain that lasted for about 72 hours, just unrelenting. From the point that they found the tumor, I've never had that pain again. Now, the tumors weren't gone, but from the point that this, the, the, the scan revealed the tumor, I've never had that pain again. And I remember Dr. Slabach saying to us, that pain was a gift because that pain led to a diagnosis of what was going on on the inside. So had it not been for that pain, those tumors would have continued to grow and who knows what would have happened. Now, as, as you and I have walked through trials and challenges 
that, that have been magnified over the past year, it has revealed some things. And I still remember Wayne preaching through James, and my mom would tell you that her favorite series that Wayne Barber ever preached was through the book of James. But I remember even Wayne saying way back then, trials and the challenges that you and I face do not cause us to react in unusual ways. Trials don't add something to us. Trials actually reveal what's going on on the inside. Trials are a revealer of what's really going on on the inside. And so when we see patience and humility in the midst of trials, or when we see anger and fear and uncertainty well up in us, those are not things that the trial has put in us. Those are things that the trial is revealing about what's going on in us. I um, got to preach it at, at Grace Baptist last week and um, at my home church. And one of the things I said that I've realized recently is it's not so much what I am in my quiet time, in my time alone with the Lord. It's not so much that my quiet time reveals what I am as much as my unquiet time reveals what I am. Like when I'm trying to spend time with the Lord and then a small war breaks out in the living room while I need it quiet, right? My responses reveal what's going on on the inside. And so I often ask myself, and, and when I get opportunities to speak in different places, I, I often come back to the question of, okay, when does Jesus become real to us? When does, when does authentic Christianity take a hold of us? How do I go deeper in my experience with Christ and in my walk with him, not only so that I can enjoy him in worship, but also so that where I go bears his aroma? Remember 2 Corinthians 2, that we are the aroma of Christ? How do I go deeper there? How do I experience that there? Well, I, I think Philippians 2 can do a diagnosis for us. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. I'm gonna start there. And then we're actually gonna go backwards. So verse 12, and I'm reading from the ESV, Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation, Pretty important that Paul says your own. I'm really good at working out other people's salvation. I'm really good at pointing out where other people need to be sanctified. But Paul encourages the church, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which means with, with an attitude and a heart of worship, knowing what? The rest of the verse says, knowing that God is at work in you. I'm reading a book that was written in the 40s, the 1640s, actually, um, by a Puritan, English Puritan writer, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. But there was a quote in there which he, when he said, we, we can give the impression and our lives on the outward can look like great calmness and peace, while on the inside there is confusion and anxiety and vexation. It's on page 20. 
Because I keep coming back to page 20 and realizing that, Lord, I've worked so hard at managing my, my reactions and, and not overreacting. I've worked at managing how I handle people, but somehow I feel like I've been neglecting self-care and what's going on in the inside. And what's going on on the inside will eventually let the outside know. So as we look at Philippians and as we think about the fact that, yes, it is God who is at work in us, what is he doing? What is he, what is he cultivating? What is his agenda? Where is he taking us? Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, if we don't know what it is that God's up to, if we don't know what his agenda is, if we don't know what it is that he's doing in us, then isn't it true we could find ourselves actually fighting against or resisting the very things that he's trying to use to shape us? so that we look more like Christ, so that we experience a sweeter fellowship with him. Could it be possible that even as we gather this morning, there are some things that are troubling us, there are some things that are, are invading the space of our minds right now and churning in our hearts and, and to realize, wait, could that be the Lord? Could that be the pain that's pointing to some sort of cancer that's growing on the inside, a spiritual cancer, if you will. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's go backwards. Paul says to this church he loves dearly, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That sounds like unity to me. What's the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to put the gospel on display. So that in how we love one another, how we forgive one another, how we build one another up, how we serve one another, we reflect the gospel, how Christ has loved us and forgiven us and served us. The purpose of the church is to put the gospel on display and how we relate to one another and how from different backgrounds and different places that we come from, we love one another, we serve one another, and it brings the aroma of Christ to Scottsboro and to the places that we work. It's a beautiful picture that Paul is painting for us in verses one and two. But how do we get there? What is, what is Christ's agenda in all of this? What is he doing? Well, I think verses three and four leading into verse five help us. Do nothing. Everybody say nothing. Okay, say it louder. Nothing. Do nothing. From, I'm shorter than Stephen, obviously. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. There's our word, okay? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, have this mind or have this mindset in yourselves, which was, I like the New American Standard, which was also in Christ Jesus or which is yours in Christ Jesus. So one thing that we can be assured of, I, I, a guy that discipled me when we were at Woodland Park 
said to me one time, Kelly, and he said to a group of us actually that he was training, if you ever want to hit a home run when you're preaching a message, there's two things that you can preach on. You can preach on trials because everybody's got one and everybody's either on their way in, in the midst of, or on their way out of one. Or you can preach on prayer because everybody knows that they don't pray enough. Well, that's true, but what I'm realizing is for me personally, what I need to hear over and over and over again, I need to be reminded that God's goal in shaping me to be like Jesus and to enjoy more of Jesus, God's goal is humility. So whatever else is going on in our lives, I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that one of the things that God is doing, actively doing, and the Spirit of God is actively doing within us is He's working to cultivate a heart of humility. To become men and women of God, to become men and women of character, of substance, so that it's not just the words that we know to say, We don't know just the right actions, but it comes out of a heart. It's a battle. It is a fight for humility. And what are we fighting against? Well, look at what what Paul writes to us there. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The problem is within. The biggest problem that you and I have is not outside of us. It is not certain other people in the church or it's not this trial or that. Our biggest problem is within. Our biggest challenge is within. Jesus said in Mark chapter seven, from within, from out of the heart, come all of these different things. So the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, is actively at work in our hearts. And I, again, would submit to you that I think this is a primary place that he's working. Do nothing from selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition that he's talking about here? It's, it, is, it, it looks like love. It looks like spirituality. It, it appears loving, but there's a secret ambition to use others for my own selfish gain. It, it sometimes confuses position with power over others. Selfish ambition is a competitive mindset. And you say, well, now that's where you don't have me, Kelly, because I'm really, I'm really laid back and so I'm not competitive. But in our minds, it has to do with how we think about other people and how we see others. It's a competitive mindset. If I win, then I feel safe, I feel whole, I feel worth it. Someone else's loss means my win. Now, for those of us here that are married, surely we would never have a mindset that we are so thankful when our spouse has an idea about something and insists on something, and then it turns out wrong. Not that we would ever gloat. Because what that means is, my win is their loss. It's a competitive mindset. That's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition actively seeks followers because that feeds our ego and it lightens our insecurity. And then he talks about conceit. Conceit is the ability to gain appreciation from other people when there's no substance to really appreciate. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. It is a mindset that says that others exist for me. 
that when others approve me, when others applaud me, when the right people think rightly about me, when the right people approve of me, then I'm whole. But that also shows where we're seeking our salvation, doesn't it? It's outside of the gospel. God has declared you justified. You're robed in the righteousness of Christ. You have been declared not guilty and innocent of all charges. God's righteousness has been satisfied in Christ through his life at the cross, through his resurrection. That's my identity is in the gospel. But we are so prone to forget, we, I, I'm so prone to forget that my security is in Christ, not in the approval and the applause of others. Paul says, do nothing, not one thing from selfish ambition or conceit. It shows a broken way of understanding relationships and other people and the purpose of relationships. But look at the word. Here's here's our key word, okay? But in humility, in humility, Humility, count others more significant than yourselves. How do you view others? Your experience of Christ, the confirmation or denial of your salvation is directly tied to how you view and serve others. Remember Jesus' words, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you have what? Love for one another. How do you and I talk or think about other people? If you find yourself constantly tearing down the weak or the opposite sex or a certain race, if, if you're self-righteous about not being self-righteous, I'm just glad I'm not like those people. If you constantly find yourself needing to tear down the performance or the achievements of others, whether it's academic or athletic or in the workplace or people's looks, again, it shows something about where we're seeking our salvation and where our values are. If you and I need the failures and weaknesses of others to feel secure, then something's broken because the gospel delivers us from that. As long as I'm looking to others to affirm me or looking to others to make me feel better, then I'm not looking to the gospel. I'm looking outside of the gospel for my wholeness. And it fuels my self-righteousness on one end and my insecurities on the other. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes to that beautiful passage, doesn't he? Verses six through 11 about Christ and his incarnation and his coming for our rescue. Brothers and sisters, When it comes to humility, we will never humble ourselves to the degree that our Savior did to come and rescue us. 
Take some time in Philippians 2 and meditate on and think about what it was like for our Lord Jesus before he came, before he took on the robe of our humanity, before he walked the dirt of our streets, before he endured the cross. That his his glory was, was veiled that he had the appearance of a man. People didn't see him and he glowed a certain way. Like if I could put on these screens a picture of Jesus with the 12 disciples, you wouldn't look and go, that right there, there's Jesus right there. Because Jesus always wears white, right? Like Jesus looks different or there's like a halo. I never got that, but like there's this thing over his head, right? Nor would you look at that picture of those 13 men and go, and there's Judas because he just has the look. He lived among us. He walked among us. He washed the feet of his disciples. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Why? Because your savior pictured that. He modeled that. Well, Kelly, what what does this look like? Practically speaking, how do we how we do this. I read a book a while back, and actually our college group at Grace is going through it now, and most of them don't have this cover, but a little book called Humility by Andrew Murray. I don't know if you've read any of Andrew Murray's writings, <clears throat> but um, there's a paragraph that really got to me at the beginning of chapter nine. In an address I lately heard, the speaker said that the blessings of the higher Christian life were often like the objects exposed in a shop window. One could see them clearly and yet could not reach them. If told to stretch out his hand and take, a man would answer, I cannot. There's a thick pane of glass between them and me. And even so, Christians may see clearly the blessed promises of perfect peace and rest, of overflowing love and joy, of abiding communion and fruitfulness, and yet feel that there was something between hindering the true possession. And what that might be, nothing but pride. It's interesting because I would probably have answered that, well, you just don't know enough, right? or you haven't had this experience or that experience. That's what's standing in the way of, boy, if you just knew more, if you just studied more, if you just prayed more, if you just, but, but Murray makes the statement and Murray makes the case that for us to experience the joy that Paul talks about in Philippians 4, for us to experience the contentment that he talks about in chapter 4, for us to be able to see, for me to, to live is Christ, to, to be able to experience that life that Christ bought for us and that, that he's bought to give us and to robe us in. Murray makes the case that at the root of all of those graces, at the root of all of those experiences, there must be humility. And there must be an active war waged on pride. What is humility? Well, some would say humility is a right assessment of who I am in light of who God is. Humility is not thinking more of myself than I ought to think. Humility is not thinking less of myself than I ought to think. Humility is thinking of myself less. 
Andrew Murray makes the case in his book that humility is the place of entire dependence upon God. Humility is how we come into salvation, recognizing that we are a sinner, that we could never do enough good or righteousness to outweigh our bad, that in light of an infinitely holy God, even one sin is infinitely an offense to him, that we could never rescue or save ourselves. We come into our relationship with Christ. We come into our salvation in humility. And we grow in that humility. It is pride to say no to self and no to religion and no to, I could never be good, but we live in that. We don't graduate from that, we live in that. We go deeper in that. Of all the graces of the Christian life, love, joy, peace, contentment, humility is at the core. It is at the root of our experience and our expression of these things. But again, as I said, to grow in humility, we must learn to wage war. Christ-likeness is a battle. It's a battle. And the battle for humility is waged in the heart. It's not about managing my actions and my reactions. It's about something internal that's going on It is a war that is waged internally by the grace of God and through the spirit of God. It is a war that is waged internally that will let the outside know. Let let me remind us of the why. The why is that I might know Christ. The why is that there is more joy to be found in Christ, to delight in him. And what stands in the way, what clouds my view of him, what what permeates and what weakens my experience with him is not other people. It's not my circumstances. At the core, it's about pride that's in me. And again, I say, that one of the places the Holy Spirit is actively at work in us in some form or another is addressing this. That I might know Christ and pride, my own selfish pride in its various forms and in the ways that it even tries to hide itself and disguise itself, that pride at its core is the enemy of the experience of Christ that I'm longing for. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, however it is that you're longing for Christ. And some of you in your minds have fought that battle and you've heard those voices that say, that's for other people, but not for you. Yeah, you can see that in this person or in the elders or in this lady or in, but but don't even think that you could go there. That is not the voice of your shepherd. That is not the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus desires that. He desires that you and I know him and walk with him and enjoy intimacy with him. He desires that. He is for that. He is not against your experience of that. He's for that. So how how do we wage war? What does that look like? Kelly, get, get practical with us. Well, let me just throw some different hows out. The why is joy in Christ. And 
Think about the other part of Philippians 2. Go down to, um, go down to verses 14 and 15. Because this all weaves together. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. I hate that verse. I just complained about a verse, about complaining. A sweet, sweet saint in our church. I was talking to her last week, and I said, Miss Judy, I just, you are one of those people that you just bear the aroma of Christ. I just, I so look up to you and your husband. And she said, no, no, cracks me up. She said, no, no. She said, I've had lots of people say, oh, you're gonna have so many crowns. And she said, no, I've lost every one of them because I complain. She said, everything I go through, I complain. I said, well, I don't know about that. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Why? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do we live in a crooked and twisted generation? Does it need Christ? Do we bear the solution? Salvation is not in politics. Salvation is not in me celebrating as sin what the Bible, or celebrating as, as life what the Bible calls sin. It's not found there. But listen, we don't hate those people. We grieve for them. They need desperately to see and experience the love of Christ without compromising the truth. But they need to see Jesus. They need to know the hope that the gospel alone can bring the rescue that they're longing for. So why do we wage war on pride? That we might know and enjoy Jesus, but also that we might bear his aroma, that we might be light in a crooked and perverse, broken, desperate generation. Well, these are gonna seem random, but let me throw these things out. How do we wage that war? Well, one, we need to be willing to let the word be the spotlight to expose our hearts. Now, listen to me. Stillness is not something that comes easy for us. I just recently spoke to some faculty at Grace Baptist Academy where Stephen attended and Stephanie attended. We were talking about prayer and I had a, uh, one of the faculty, one of the teachers came up to me afterwards and she said, Kelly, prayer has always been a battle for me. And she said, what I've realized recently is that it's not just prayer, it's that I have to be still for a while. And she said, sometimes it takes me five or 10 minutes just of stillness before I'm ready to hear. Any of you know that battle? You just heard the washing machine buzz as you sat down to get in the way. This is just, right? And you just tell the Lord, Lord, I'll be right back. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Lord, I'll be right back, but I need to complete this task and get those clothes dry, and then those clothes can be drying while, while I'm coming back to spend time with you. And then something else happens when you're down there, and that needs to be cleaned out, and then the phone rings, and then you got this text, and then there's what? Stillness, particularly in our culture. I remember getting mad coming back from Venezuela one time because of all the, the TVs that were in the airport. And it's funny walking out of Put mine down there, good for me. Um, it's funny, you can walk through grocery stores, just notice like even in restaurants, people that are supposed to be together eating and they're looking at their phones. I don't want a TV. In, in a grocery store, I can't even put gas in my car now without commercials talking to me. Stillness is hard. 
Stillness is a labor. And stillness with the word in front of us, stillness, not just me reading the word, but inviting the word to read me. Being still long enough for the word to search me. Stillness with the word. But also, fight for humility in prayer. Wage war on the enemy of your joy and your delight in Christ. Now, does Paul say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Philippians 4.13, yes. Is there an element of surrender in the midst of that and asking him to, to come? Yes. But there's also a command Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there is a reliance on Christ. That's one wing of the plane. And there's a responsibility on my end. This plane is not gonna fly without both wings. There's a responsibility. There are things that I need to do. And there's a reliance knowing that I cannot do this apart from him. Fight for humility in prayer. Counseling um, a young man now that... um, is having conflict in a family situation. I'll say it that way. Just was on the phone with him for about an hour this week. And and as we talked about the situation and the conflict with a family member, one of the things that I cautioned him of was this. Pray by the grace of God, wage war, empowered by the Spirit, wage war against animosity. Don't you let animosity get root in your heart. Don't don't you let animosity take root in your heart toward this person who's a sister in Christ. You pray, Holy Spirit, help me to walk through this. I need wisdom to walk through this. But I pray, slay, destroy, give me the grace to wage all-out war against animosity because if I dwell on that, that's gonna come in the way of my enjoying you and reflecting you, Jesus, and I don't want that. You wage war against animosity even in the midst of that conflict. Got an email from a church member a while back, an accusatory email from a church member. Y'all don't do that here to your pastor or elders, but... Um, accusing me of something, and they had sent an email to the pastor, and the pastor sent me the email that they sent, and we're just like, oh my goodness. Lying awake at night, two in the morning, going, Lord, not going there. This is my brother in Christ, not going there. God, give me the grace to fight against animosity welling up in me. How do you fight for humility in prayer? You wage war. Some of y'all go, wish you hadn't come. You wage war on the desire for imaginary conversations in your head. Do any of you have imaginary conversations with people that you're in conflict with? Now, I'm just gonna make all-out confession here that like, in my imaginary conversations, I always win. And sometimes in my imaginary conversation, I like brothers and sisters in Christ around me going, wow, Kelly, that was amazing right? But it's only in my imaginary conversations that I come up with those zingers and those great, because I think of great things to say like two hours later after the conversation has taken place, which is a gift from the Lord, by the way. Remember, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility. 
if I'm going to wage war on pride, that I might enjoy Christ and reflect him to others, then not that I don't think through, okay, how do I properly handle this situation with this person? Lord, how do I, how do I honor you? And working through that even this week in, in a situation. Lord, how do, I, how do I honor you in doing this without animosity taking place and without me going, oh, no, there I go in that imaginary conversation, not going there, but Lord, I need wisdom to know how to handle this. Listen, you have to wage war on the desire for imaginary conversations in your head. And for some of us here, we need to fight against bitterness over past experiences. Because the cross defines me, not my past. It is Christ and his righteousness that define me, not how someone hurt me in the past. You can't move forward looking back. Let me just say this as a message for another time, but let me just say this. Forgiveness does not mean approval. That was liberating to me in a conversation, in a, a message at Woodland Park years ago. And some, some pastor that Wayne had come in, and that's the statement that he made. I have no idea who the pastor was, don't remember his name, anything. But that statement, forgiveness does not mean approval. Part of the reason that some of us hold on to unforgiveness is because we think that to forgive means that's saying what they did was okay. Christ Jesus forgave us of all of our sin without approving of any one of them. And replaying those conversations and replaying that situation in your mind over and over again is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. We must wage war on those things that disturb our soul and hinder us from enjoying and walking with Christ. Now, sometimes we need help in that. Sometimes we need counseling and you need brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside of you, not to applaud your bitterness, but to say, okay, we're gonna wage war and we're gonna pray together through this. Sometimes forgiveness is a process that we work through with the word and with prayer that we choose to cancel a debt that that person could never repay. They took something from you that can never be replaced. We cancel that debt by the grace of God, and we stop going back there. And every time we find ourselves going back there, somebody must need to hear that because I had not planned on going here. Every time we find ourselves going back there, no, Lord, that debt has been canceled. Give me the grace to move forward. You fight that war long enough, you will begin to experience the freedom that can come from that. Let the word search us in stillness fight for humility in prayer, wage war against pride. Don't fight alone. Invite others in your life who will remind you of the gospel and speak truth to you. We need one another. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything that I've become compassionate or passionate about over this past year, it's that church is far more than just watching a message on a screen or, in, or attending a gathering. Church is here together. The
the body of Christ, knowing one another, loving one another, getting in one another's lives, encouraging one another. Because I don't know about you, but I'm prone to forget the gospel. I'm prone to forget truth. I'm prone to forget how Christ loves me. I'm prone to forget God's ways. And so I need brothers and sisters in my life who know me and love me well enough to speak truth. And sometimes that truth is I need to be encouraged. I remember the best man in our wedding saying, Kelly, you have a tendency to focus on people in their strengths while focusing on you and your weaknesses. You focus on them in their best moments and you on your worst moments, and then you beat yourself up. And he said, you better stop that. You know what? You're right. I've never forgotten that conversation. <clears throat> Stillness in the word. Fight for humility in prayer. Don't fight alone. Let's add this one in here. This is from a message way back that I heard Wayne preach. Often confess what you are not. What in the world do you mean by that? When it comes to relating to the body of Christ, when it comes to, for me, I'm, I'm on my way to a lunch appointment with one of the guys that I'm discipling, and in driving there, it would be very easy for my ego to go, wow, I must really be something that somebody would want to meet with me and have me disciple them because I'm so wise. I must really be something. No, because <clears throat> I see every day what I am apart from him. But what it's very good for me to do is in driving, I need to confess, Lord, I'm not a discipler. I'm not a disseminator of great wisdom. I'm a really dumb sheep. And Jesus, I need you to be in me everything that's needed in this moment. Maybe it's counseling or maybe it's the weekly Bible study that I write. Maybe it's counseling with an individual that's struggling in an area that's, very, that's foreign to me. I didn't have his background. But to go, Lord, I need you to meet us in the moment and I need you to be in me what I'm not. So spend time confessing what you're not and asking Jesus to be in you everything that's needed in the moment. <clears throat> Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Where's that unity gonna come from? Humility pride being actively slain. You want to know Christ? Philippians chapter 3, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You want to know Christ? In humility. Absolute dependence upon him. Acknowledging my nothingness and my need. But in humility. <clears throat> Count others more significant than yourselves. I exist to serve others. Others don't exist to serve me. I exist to serve my family. They don't exist to serve me. It's a fight for joy. It's a fight for character, to be men and women of substance and of character, that our lives bear the aroma of Christ, that I might know him and that I might reflect him to others. Final illustration, and then we'll wrap this up. When it comes to my relations to others, 
Does my presence on the team, does my presence in the room, does my presence through disagreements raise the temperature of the situation or moderate it? Is Jesus' presence and ruling in my heart manifest through me? Are you and I thermometers controlled by the temperature of the room and simply reflecting the temperature of the room or are we thermostats? We set the temperature of the room by our presence there. Remember verse 15, that you may shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation Woe be to the church if we revert to the ways of a crooked and broken generation to try to accomplish gospel purposes. We are to be light in a dark world. Does my presence bring drama or peace, clarity? I'll tell you the way the Lord challenged me with this and they're sitting on the front row. I started realizing that really just in the last year, of how when there's some sort of um, heated debate over something of great theological significance, like who took this or that, or who took my place on the couch, that's a big one, Um, is the way that I'm responding, elevating the temperature in the room? Am I trying to control the situation by getting louder? Am I elevating the tenseness in the room, or am I moderating that? And that will only come if Christ Jesus is moderating my heart. Do I add to the drama or do I bring peace and clarity? Are we fighting against some of the very things that the Lord is actively working in to cultivate in us a heart of humility that we might know him and reflect him in humility we might love as Jesus loves, serve as Jesus serves. In Philippians 3, we might know him as he desires to be known. Let's pray. Let's let this be a moment of stillness. Just everyone here, if you mentally would just draw a circle around yourself as if there's nobody else in this room, it's you and the Lord, and saying, Lord, what what do you want me to hear? Lord, what is it that we need to see? Lord, what is it that we need to surrender? Don't delay your response and know that this is where the fight for joy, this is the battleground. It's not a matter of if I give up, they win. It's that if I surrender, he wins. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're not against our joy, you're for it. Please search us as we sing, as we interact, as we get still with you even this day, before this day is out, just quiet before you. 
knowing that you love us. You have forever demonstrated that on the cross. You're not against us. You're for us. And so you're actively working to root out, to do an internal surgery that we might experience spiritual health. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray.